Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Backchat. If the Nature podcast is the abstract of a science paper, then Backchat is a feisty banner written all in capital letters. This month we're tackling scientific writing, the march for science and biases in artificial intelligence. I'm Kerry Smith and I'm joined in London by David Adam. Hello Kerry, I uh, edit the editorials pages. And Davide Castelvecchi. Hello, I am a physics and mathematics writer. And on the line from his home in South London is nature contributor and Backchat newbie, Phil Ball. Hello, Kerry. Um, I'm a science writer, freelance science writer, and I used to be an editor at Nature. Wonderful. Now, coming up in the show, scientists and science fans alike will take to the streets around the world this weekend in the March for Science. But not everyone in the scientific community has been cheerleading. Humans are full of biases, and so are the artificially intelligent systems we build. How can we, the builders, avoid biasing our creations? Plus, it's not just you. Scientific language in research papers is definitely getting harder to read. What does this say about the authors, and what implications does it have? Now, first this month, uh, taking place tomorrow, we're recording this on Friday, is the March for Science. David Adam, for anyone not familiar, what is the March for Science, and why has it been organised? I think it depends who you ask. Um, certainly the the organisers of the March for Science would like to say that it is a, a very broad support for the principles of science, for the scientific method, for the importance of science. It certainly started out as a, as a Washington DC event and then it sort of snowballed and there's now over 500, I believe, that are going to take place almost simultaneously around the world. Of course, the context in which it's been organised is a very difficult one for science in the US. The Trump administration is widely perceived to be sort of trampling all over those scientific values that the marchers, uh, the organisers of the march are seeking to protect. And so clearly that there is a, a narrative has emerged that it's an anti-Trump, it's a, it's, it's a much more negative protest. But I think, I, th- I think the general principle remains that it's, a, it's supposed to be a positive demonstration of public support, I suppose, and, and, and scientific support for what are quite nebulously defined as, as the goals and the values of science. And some people have felt that it has become, it's making a political point, that it's become politicised. That's been one of the criticisms levelled at it. Is that the main one? Are there others? I think so. It had rather difficult birth because it got the criticism that that, that you are politicising science. But I think from gauging the reaction, I, I think that is used as a criticism mostly by the people who feel like they're being protested against. And actually, my own personal view is that it's rather naive to think that science can exist in, in a world which is political and, and not notice it and pretend to be 
aloof from it. And I know I'm really interested to hear what Phil might think about this because he, of course, wrote a book about this very issue in the in the 1940s and before with 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 the physicists. So, Phil, what do you think? Do you think that science can exist, sort of ignorant of the political circumstances around it? I think science is inherently political. Um, I've been following this discussion with great interest because it's um, it's excited a whole debate about, around whether science should be regarded as apolitical or not. And I understand the arguments in the sense that the, the, the knowledge that we find out through the scientific method, one would hope um, is going to be independent of the political context in which it is found. But science is a social enterprise. It's practiced by people who decide what they're going to look at, what they're going to look into, what questions they're going to ask and how to implement the answers they find. And that is inherently political, just as the the whole mechanisms of science, the institutions and the funding clearly depend on on politics. And this is, you know, but one of the points of the, the march itself. So I agree, David, I think it is naive to imagine that science as a human activity is something that happens, you know, ab- above the sphere of politics. And in particular, it worries me when that suggestion is made, because it is precisely the argument that was put forward in Nazi Germany in the 1930s by German scientists who had a very strong view that science, as they put it, should be apolitical, that actually all of intellectual life, that, you know, academia should be apolitical. And it seemed very clear to me in writing that book about that period that this attitude made it actually rather easy for the Nazi administration to manipulate science to its own ends, because scientists felt that they had a duty not to engage with politics. I I think it's a dangerous attitude to take. So, in effect, they they kind of reneged their right to be involved in how what politics did with science because they said oh well we're just going to do it over here and not really engage with you well einstein for example who was out of um outside of germany when hitler came to power and and stayed out of germany and said i'm not coming back um he was heavily criticized by some of his colleagues including some of his friends for making statements that were deemed to be political statements about the dismissal of jewish scientists or people who were judged to be jewish scientists by the Nazis from their academic positions. There were many scientists and academics who felt that it was not the position of someone like Einstein to comment. So if there is a historical parallel for the mar- of the March for Science, then it's essentially it's Einstein and his colleagues who did speak out uh, and did engage with the, with the politics of the time. I think it is. But I think we see the same kind of a political interference in science in the Soviet Union around the same time. So, you know, I don't think this is anything that's confined to a particular part of the political spectrum. The attitude that David was talking about, about science scientists perceiving that they're kind of under threat, I don't think that's something that you hear amongst Chinese scientists. I think within China, there's a huge support for science, including you know, a great deal of, of financial support. And, um, you know, I think that this undermines the idea that's often voiced that science only flourishes in a liberal democracy. David, Adam, you've um, recently, obviously, uh, uh, in charge of the editorial section as you are, you've been coordinating Nature's opinion on the March for Science. And there was quite a lot of internal discussion about what Nature should say, if, if anything. How did you arrive at the decision you did? I think there, was, there wasn't there was universal support for the march because I, I, I think... 
most people accepted that the criticisms of it had had a, had a case and should at least be considered and not be rejected out of hand. Um, and I think whether people supported the march or not depended on how seriously they took those criticisms um, and as, as, a, as a reason not to do it at all. Now, the consensus, not that there was a really a consensus, but the, the majority view seemed, and this is the view that we took ultimately in the editorial, was that the public, you know, one of the things that we do at Nature is we encourage scientists to speak out and to engage with debate and talk to politicians or even to become politicians because we do think that science, as, as Phil said, is a societal pursuit and, and you know, you, you, you have to engage with, with, with the politics of that society. And so it, it was a quite an easy decision, I think, for us to support the general idea. Then the question became, well, how, how much do the criticisms um, deflect from, from the purpose and, and I think that remains to be seen. You know, this is happening tomorrow. I think the message that will come forward is just a general sense of the value and the importance of, of science. It, it, it seems that some people are concerned that this uh, march has become a bit of a debate about what the agendas of science are and whether science itself is um, affected by problems of sexism, racism, you know, um, dismissal of minority views. And I think this is this seems to be what is making some people uncomfortable. It seems to be particularly a discussion in, in, in the States where I think perhaps these issues are more of a hot potato than they are um, in certainly in Europe. Well, it remains to uh, ask listeners to tell us, are they going? If so, why? If they are not going, it would be nice to know that also, your reasons for not attending the march. Uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, at Nature News and at Nature Podcast, and we'll have reporters from the news team at various locations around the world um, attending some of these marches and uh, telling you what's going on at them for those who can't attend in person. Uh, and it's funny we should end on this idea of the march amplifying kind of problems within the scientific system, which has been one of the criticisms uh, levelled at it, because our next topic is very much about um, biases within a system transferring to another system. Uh, we're talking about artificial intelligence. This week there was a science paper, the latest in a series that suggests that the AIs that we build have the same biases and stereotypes that, that we do. Uh, Davide Castelvecchi, should that surprise us at all? Well, at this point, definitely not. There's been a series of... Uh troubling findings over the last few years at this point. The latest one was a paper uh, that came out in Science on the 13th of April. And I had a chance to talk to, I had a very interesting conversation with uh, one of the authors, who was Johanna Bryson from the University of Bath here in the UK. They did a study of texts in English that were available uh, online. And they looked for implicit associations of words. So um, words that just statistically were more uh, likely to uh, appear close to each other within a text, say, for example, in the same clause, than others. And this was motivated by a different kind of association tests uh, done by psychologists. It's called the implicit association tests, and it's, it's a kind of test in which participants are asked to react as quickly as they can uh, when they hear certain words. And the scientists measure whether the reaction is faster or slower. For example, if you hear the word man followed by nurse, 
versus woman polar bear nurse. And there's often um, a slight difference in, in how fast we react. So apparently there's some kind of cognitive dissonance, or I don't know if that's the right term, happening in our brain. We process the words man and, and nurse slower than we do woman and nurse. So those were the studies that were known, um, done by psychologists with, with uh, human subjects. And then uh, what, um, what Bryson and her colleagues did was they took uh, existing texts that, that, that is online and analyzed it and, and found the associations, the same kinds of associations with, between words that apparently people seem to make in their minds. This is when the machine was making new sentences up or? This was purely from learning. This was a mining text and, and making the machine learn associations from the text. But what is interesting is that it's the same way that AI systems are trained oftentimes. For example, machine translation. And in fact, the authors of this study also, also released a very interesting video where one of the authors uh, uses Google Translate. And there is, uh, and she writes a sentence in Turkish, and Turkish has a genderless pronoun. And so the sentence is, they are a doctor, essentially. And the translation into English is, he is a doctor. But if you write, they are a nurse, the translation will be, she is a nurse. And this is not because anyone coded deliberately into Google Translate that nurses are women is because Google Translate has learned by analyzing text. And so it has, um, it has just absorbed a lot of the bias that comes from, from just the way that we describe things in, in language. And as you mentioned, this isn't the only example. There have been examples that aren't text-based, but are video-based of, um, you know, webcams not being able to differentiate kind of faces with darker skin tone, for example. But I suppose the main question is, how do we get rid of this bias? We don't like this trait, right, that we're building into AI accidentally. The first step probably is to be aware of it. One case that has caused a lot of concern last year was there was an investigation by ProPublica of a company that makes software to aid judges this make decisions on parole and whether to give parole to convicts. The, the results of this algorithm were that you were much more likely to be given parole if you were white than black because the algorithm learned that for some reason there were statistically more often people who lived in certain neighborhoods tended to commit crimes while on parole and those neighborhoods sometimes happened to be predominantly black neighborhoods. And so the computer that was supposed to be more objective than humans ended up repeating the same kind of biases. I should also say that this, this, that investigation has been critiqued and uh, it's a bit controversial whether or not it's really as uh, problematic as uh, it was implied. Even the designers of AI algorithms sort of cheerfully admit that they don't really know how they work. They're a bit of a black box. They're just doing their own thing. So how do you go about fixing a bias where you can't necessarily understand how it's come to be? It's a problem, and it's a problem that computer scientists are actively trying to solve. They are doing essentially, you know, there's these neural net, artificial neural networks that learn by digesting a lot of data. And they learn, like you, like you mentioned, for example, to recognize faces. 
So computer scientists are developing techniques to do neuroscience on the artificial neural networks to, to basically open up the black box. But it's hard. There's so much, I mean, intelligence, so artificial intelligence is called artificial intelligence, obviously because it's meant to mimic human intelligence, but even the word intelligence, famously, if you ask six psychologists to define intelligence, you'll get 10 answers. It's very, very difficult to to constrain and confine and therefore to test and to work with, in, especially in a in a system which is built by built by humans. For now, it seems very easy to replicate at least one of the flaws in human cognition in the form of stereotypes. But Kerry, I'm interested that you you say, uh, completely understandably, you say, well, of course, you know, we don't want our AI systems to be having these biases that we regard generally as bad in ourselves. But then it becomes, I mean, again, it becomes politicised because the question is, who who decides? Who who designs? What do we try to design in and out? In in effect, what we're doing is saying we want to put some values into our AI system. They're not just a new. It's not just a neutral, you know, data mining system. It has to have values. So where do those values come from? And that's not a, an obvious question to to answer. Yeah, that is a tricky problem to try and design something for a future that, of course, we can't foresee from here. Well, I think that's why you know it seems to me that increasingly the question of AI is opening up to what might have been seen previously as philosophical problems. The better we get at making AI, in some ways, the harder it will become to ignore some of these really quite contentious and open-ended philosophical problems. We've lost sight of the shore of science and we've, we've been drifting into the waters of philosophy. Never a bad place to be, but turning to you finally, Phil Ball, for our, our last story, you're very much a clarifier of all of all things science, um, being as you are a science author. You're used to avoiding too much jargon in your output, one might think, but you're here to tell us of the upward trend in uh, the deployment of multisyllabic terminology in scientific papers. Scientists are using too many complex words, right, to explain their science. Yes, well, th- this is the conclusion of a, a recent study by a group of neuroscientists at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, in Sweden. And they've, it's, again, it's a data mining exercise looking at the text that we've created and what this tells us about trends. And they've looked at the abstracts of more than 700,000 English language papers published between 1881 and 2015 um, in biomedical journals. So specifically, they're looking at biomedicine. And what uh, what they've tried to do is to get some handle on whether uh, these papers or these abstracts, which represent the um, what you'll find in the papers, whether they've been becoming harder and harder to understand. And their conclusion is that they are. Now, in some ways, this might not sounds so surprising because I don't think anyone will will doubt that there's an increasing amount of scientific jargon and in some ways that's unavoidable as you know science becomes more specialized and as it simply finds out more but what this uh, team have said is that the readability of these papers isn't just down to technical jargon it's also down to the way they're written and the choice of words that aren't exactly technical but they're what the these people dub science ease. So they're words that people just tend, scientists tend to use in their papers, things like robust, significant, furthermore. 
And these are words that uh, that they say are ones that we don't encounter so regularly in an everyday sense. They're often multisyllabic. And although we don't generally find them hard to understand, they increase the cognitive load of trying to read these papers. What do you feel like the effects of this might be if this upward trend is is correct that they found? Well, for one thing, I suppose it, it seems inevitable that it makes the scientific literature and maybe scientific discourse quite generally more inaccessible to people, to the lay public. Um, so increasingly, it looks as though scientists are, you know, just sort of talking amongst themselves in an ivory tower kind of way. So, um, but it's that th- you would imagine the same is going to be true for scientists themselves who already struggle to keep up with not just the huge volume of literature, but the difficulty of any literature that is outside of their immediate field. So, you know, in one way or another, you might imagine that if this trend is real, then it's going to make science less efficient because it's going to make it less easy for the scientific information that people find out to find its way throughout the scientific community and beyond. Rather selfishly, we in this room uh, and on the phone are a population of people affected by the increase in jargon in 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 science papers. Um, David, Adam, do you do you find this to be a problem when you're trying to kind of digest a lot of information very very quickly? Uh, that's a really good question because it sounds like it's almost the non-science words which are being made longer and more complicated than necessary. So if there's the science a, ones are already complicated. Well, I, I guess um, you know. So you don't need a what was the word? Furthermore, you can just say and. But I think also, I think I think it's a defence. I think it's a bit like, so people are probably quite confident about the science when they write a paper, but not so much about the writing. And I think it's um, it's a defence. You hide behind language, which makes you sound more, more learned, I suppose. So they just resort, as a journalist, you're trained and what you try and do is you never use the same word twice in the same sentence, for example. Whereas scientists love doing that because it gives them security. They know exactly what it means. Well, that no, you can't use that word. You've just used it. But that's what I mean. Well, yeah, but find a different way of saying it. But there isn't a different way of saying it. That's what I mean. It sounds like we'd like to recommend uh, a language and, and writing training course for scientists, as well as the one on politics that we uh, kind of implicitly recommended they all take. Well, I would I, I would recommend uh, that that I mean I think it, it's not acknowledged enough that that this is something you can learn. You can get better at writing by by being taught to to write better. Phil, whenever I talk to scientists, you know, like real scientists about writing in papers, they always say, "Oh, I never read the abstract or the discussion. I just go straight to the data, the numbers." Are we overthinking the use of of language in sort of wrapping around what the, the data and the results, which is what scientists actually go for? I've heard uh, similar things, and you know, and there are some people who just look at the figures. I mean, certainly in chemistry, for example, you can get a, you can get the gist of what a paper is doing from the from the images, from the pictures of molecules, much more than you can from from the writing. And so I think that's an, perhaps an equally important part of the accessibility of, of scientific papers. And, you know, nature is, is, is simply representative in this. And so I'm not picking on nature in particular, but some of the papers that you see in nature now, you, they have these incredibly multi-part, densely packed figures full of data of tiny little graphs. Um, that, you know, at a glance, tell me absolutely nothing. And I suspect even specialists will have to work quite hard to get what they need 
from from those figures. So I think the the visual representation of science also and the graphical representation is also a really important part of how the message is conveyed that also needs to be taught. For what it's worth, I agree with Phil your earlier point that you can probably teach this stuff to an extent. But what I have uh, here in this collection of people is just raw talent. There is no teaching that. Uh, thank you all for joining me, David Adam, Davide Castelvecchi, and Phil Ball on the line. For more from Nature Magazine, check out nature.com slash news and find more audio updates at nature.com slash nature slash podcast. If you have thoughts about anything you've heard on the show, do drop us a line on Twitter at Nature Podcast or at Nature News or by email podcast at nature.com. If you know someone who would love this, recommend us to a friend or help other potential listeners find us by leaving us a little review on iTunes. I'm Kerry Smith and thank you for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs>